Welcome everybody to the latest Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the OG Rob Silver, and today we are talking about the incredible card that took place Saturday night that was aired on Showtime. Um, I will have an extended Q&A pod, uh, part of the podcast, several questions this week, and I will have a prediction on this Saturday's huge 154-pound elimination title fight between Tim Zhu and Tony Harrison, and I will end the podcast with my historical overview of my fifth greatest fighter of the last 45 years, and that is the Cincinnati Beast, Aaron the Hawk Pryor. But before I talk about all of that, I want to once again plug the following show that I've been doing on the Fight Game Media Patreon portion of the Fight Game Media Network. The link is in the description. In the description of this podcast For an additional $5 per month You will hear my breakdown Of the greatest upsets The 10 greatest upsets in boxing history That's all there But recently I started a project On the life and times of Muhammad Ali By the time you hear this I'll have two of those episodes up It's a 10 part series Part 1 is on Muhammad Ali's First round knockout of Sonny Liston in their May 1964 rematch. Part two is his November 1965 one-sided beating of two-time heavyweight and Hall of Fame member Floyd Patterson. This 10-part series will be an historical overview of Ali's career and we will look at 10 of his greatest performances, 10 of his biggest fights. And in each fight, I talk about the historical significance of that fight, what was going on in America during the time of that fight taking place. And all of that is the from the point of view of my father, because I, was, I wasn't born until 1968. But my father, who was born in 1948, told me throughout my entire lifetime, of all the controversies and um, historical events that occurred while Muhammad Ali was on top of the world in the 1960s and the 1970s. So this is all from his point of view, my recollections of conversations I've had with my father throughout my entire lifetime before he passed away in the year 2000. Uh, Also, Available on the Patreon. Just not my Maya series. You have, when it just comes to boxing, because the majority of the people listening to this podcast are hardcore boxing fans. You have, and you saw the number one movie last week weekend, set box office records for being the largest grossing boxing and sports movie of all time, Creed Three. Well, the CEO of Fight Game Media, along with a longtime friend of mine from Ireland, Duan. So that's Garrett Gonzalez and Duan co-hosted an entire Rocky retrospective where they broke down each movie and gave the historical overview, the historical impact, what was going on as far as pop culture in America at the time and throughout the world, because Duan is from Ireland. They've done every movie they reviewed and recapped and talked about every movie with facts you a lot of people do not know of or forgot about. They broke down Rocky like no other. Each one, Rocky 1, Rocky 2, Rocky 3, Rocky 4, Rocky 5, Rocky Balboa, Creed 1, and Creed 2. So it's an eight-part series. You get all of that with your additional $5 per month and one, one last uh, boxing podcast that's on that's exclusively on the Patreon page. Garrett and I did an entire breakdown of the controversial Julio docuseries on the life and times of Mike Tyson, starring Trayvon Rhodes. Uh, 
we did four episodes breaking down all eight episodes of that controversial series. So all of that is available on the Patreon exclusive part of Fight Game Media dot Fight Game Media Network podcast. And uh, you, the link is in the description. Additional five dollars per month, you get that bonus coverage. Now, on to Saturday night's fights. One of the best televised boxing cards I've ever seen in my life. I've been watching boxing now for 47 years. Started watching boxing in 1977. And there have been a lot of great boxing cards over the over the years. This is on that level. This is on that top tier level. All three of these fights from Saturday night on Showtime had incredible action. I mean, the, the, just brutality at his best. I've got a huge problem with all six of these fighters, though. The winners and the losers. No fucking defense. None of these guys did anything defensively. It's real upsetting to watch. And none of these guys are old. The oldest fighter, I believe, is Jared Hurd, who's 32. So the other five guys are under the age of 30. These are young guys, and they're only interested in offense. This was like watching today's NBA, the the, the card, all six fighters. It, this was like watching today's NBA where there's no defense and everybody's shooting threes. Saturday night, this was brutality. These were six guys looking to knock each other's head off. There was no defense. There was no bobbing and weaving. There was no... There was no feints. They didn't even try to block any punches. They didn't try to avoid any punches. That's the one negative. Now, I know offense sells in all sports, hockey, basketball, football, baseball, and, and of course, boxing. But the greatest fighters are the ones that are two-way fighters that can make you miss while hitting you or can land so many shots that their offense is so great that you can't do anything to counter. Like, per- perfect example, Manny Pacquiao. Manny Pacquiao was never a great defensive fighter, but his offense was so, so intense, and he threw so many punches and gave you so many angles. You were dizzy, and you were just trying to protect yourself. You weren't even thinking about trying to counter him unless, of course, you were Floyd Mayweather or Juan Manuel Marquez, master counterpunches. With Floyd, a master counterpuncher who's one of the three greatest defensive fighters of all time. That's... What separates a Manny Pacquiao and a Floyd Mayweather and a Juan Manuel Marquez from the six guys we saw on TV Saturday night? None of these six guys are going to have a short, uh, are going to have a long career. None of these six guys will ever be an all-time great fighter because defensively they are severely flawed. Let's start with the first fight. We've got in the first fight, and the first fight was a tremendous fight. It was. It set the tone for the entire night of boxing, and that was Elijah Garcia versus Amilcar. I'm trying to say his name part. Amilcar Vidal. Elijah Garcia, 19-year-old prospect, middleweight. He's got tremendous punching power, great hand speed. The man, offensively, is a dynamo. Defensively, he can't. Block a punch. He can't avoid a punch to save his life. For the first two rounds, Vidal did what the hell he wanted to do with Garcia. Even when he was up against the ropes, he was hitting Garcia at will. First two rounds were easily Vidal. Third round, Garcia began to land combinations, and he began to crowd Vidal, and Vidal wasn't landing as much as he did the prior two rounds. Then in round four, Vidal, who has a Bad habit of backing up against the ropes. Got caught up against the ropes and was hurt. And Garcia landed several explosive shots. Dropped Vidal. And the referee had no choice but to stop the fight. Because Vidal got up. But he took such a brutal beating when he went down that it was a wrap. It was a wrap. A tremendous win for uh, 
Garcia, as far as his age, he's 19 years old. He beat a ranked fighter in Vidal. But uh, he better make his money now because he took a lot of shots, a lot of unnecessary shots. And the minute he faces an elite boxer at 160, he's going to suffer a Jeff Lacey-type beating. And for those who don't remember, uh, recently we had the anniversary of the night that Jeff Lacey took a one-sided beating from Joe Calzaghe because he was exposed. Ladies and gentlemen, I know people fall in love with knockouts. If you go on social media... You remember the buzz behind Edgar Belanga, but Edgar Belanga is a fucking stiff, right? No defense whatsoever. You just can't go for home runs. Garcia is a home run hitter who's going to get struck out very soon and badly. At least in baseball, when a home run hitter strikes out, the only thing bruised is his ego. In boxing, when a home run hitter gets struck out, it could mean irreparable damage. Physical damage. Then we go on to the semifinal, and I have advice for the brother. I have loved Jared Hurd his entire career. One of the most exciting fighters uh, of my lifetime. And Jared Hurd fought damn near everybody 154 pounds, and he gave everybody help. The only guys he didn't face at 154 were the Charlo brothers. But other than that, he fought everybody, had a nice reign as a alphabet soup belt holder. It's over for you, uh, Jared. Jarrett moved up to middleweight, and now he's lost his second consecutive fight, another fight in which he took a brutal beating. Jose Armando Resendiz. Resendiz, in in, had he fought Hurd in Hurd's prime, would have been put in the hospital. Resendiz leaves with his face. He doesn't try to block any shots. And Resendiz has a great chin. But come on. Him and Hurd stood in the middle of the ring. And for the first six, seven rounds, they beat the hell out of each other with one bomb after another. Hurd's defense is shot. Hurd used to walk you down, and he would defend himself while walking you down in his prime. Never been the same. And as a middleweight, he is done. Resendee broke, looked like he broke Hurd's jaw, and Hurd, was getting hit with flush shots round seven round eight round nine round nine was a total massacre kudos to the doctor for stopping the fight when the 10th round began Resendiz with a huge win on his ledger but at middleweight once again I've said this before the middleweight division today is the worst it's in its worst state of my 47 years of watching boxing. The state of the middleweight division is pathetic. You have Charlo, who never fights. You have Erislandi Lara, who's 75 years old. You have Triple G, who's 92 years old. These are the champions that you have at 160. And Janabek, who has yet to prove himself as far as being an elite fighter. 160 pounds is trash. That's why I've said for the last couple of years that that Xander Zayas, who who has solid defense, who throws combinations, who's a gifted boxer puncher, it's time for him to step up and stop fighting bums and start going after these middleweight titles and start cleaning up this division. Now, make this prediction again. Xander Zayas will be the first long-term reigning Puerto Rican middleweight champion. Put that in the bank. And it should be no problem now because of the of these stiffs and geezers at 160 pounds. Finally, we get to the main event. Another barroom brawl. Mark Moxeo versus Brandon Figueroa. And Brandon Figueroa has turned into his brother Omar. And his brother Omar has taken so many beatings that his career is over. Brandon Figueroa. 12-round brawl with Mark Maceo. And I've said this once. I've said this a million times. Mark Maceo is a one-dimensional fighter. All he does 
is try to outpunch you and then but then he'll take his time and he'll have laps throughout the fight like he did against Gary Russell when he won the title like he did against Ray Vargas when he lost the title and like he did Saturday night when he lost to Brandon Figueroa Brandon Figueroa doesn't stop throwing punches doesn't stop throwing punches even when he lost to Stephen Coolboy Fulton he kept coming he kept coming. But Brandon Figueroa is 26 years old. I highly doubt that he will still be this good by the age of 30. He doesn't. He throws a lot of punches. He uses his chin. And he bragged about it last night, how he's got the best chin in boxing. That's nothing to brag about. His defense is his chin. There's a question that's go- that, that I will address during the Q&A session about fighters like the six we saw. So I will save my answer for for when I answer that question. But these six fighters, Jared Herb needs to retire. No commission should allow Jared Herb ever to fight again. He's done. Stick a fork in him. He has no business in the ring. He, he is now like Yorkie's Gamboa. He should not be allowed to fight. It is criminal that Gamboa or Herb ever be allowed to have a sanctioned fight again in boxing. I know people are going to say, but, but OG, what else is he going to do? Well, you know, Jared Hurd, he's been in gyms his entire life. Go start training boxes because you cannot defend yourself anymore. And he's 32. He's the oldest of the six. The other five, similar consequences. And I know people wanted to hear you. The fight card was excellent. It was one of the best fight cards I've ever seen televised. But we've got to start teaching these guys how to fight defensively before boxing turns into today's NBA. Everybody trying to throw knockout bombs. And the consequences are you're taking more punches than ever before. No, every fight can't be a barroom brawl. I want more fighters to adhere to a Winky Wright or Floyd Mayweather defensively than adhere to an Arturo Gatti or Mickey Ward defensively. Now on to my Q&A. Oh, before I do the Q&A session, let me make a prediction about this week's big fight coming up. 154 pounds. Tim Zhu versus Tony Harrison. First of all, I want to commend Tony Harrison for the great job he's doing as one of the best young trainers in the sport today. He turned Alicia Baumgartner into a world-class fighter. Baumgartner is going to make huge money as an undisputed world champion now that she is. She's got huge money fights possibly down the line with a Katie Taylor, or an Amanda Serrano. Because I see if that rematch occurs, the winner to fight Baumgartner, I would love to see it. And that's Tony Harrison. He took over from what his father started and has molded Alicia into an incredible fighter. Tony Harrison with the Super Bad Gym in Detroit has done great work for the community out there, for the young children, and I want to see him succeed. Tim Zhu has fought a bunch of bums his entire career. This is the first real fight. He's fighting Tony Harrison, the man who has fought damn near every 154-pound fighter in his career. The only man to beat Charlo. And even though I thought Charlo won the fight, Harrison fought his ass off. And in the rematch, I thought Harrison was winning before Charlo won with a late-round knockout. Tony Harrison versus Tim Zhu. This fight is huge for both fighters. Both fighters have a lot riding on this. If Tony Harrison loses, it it will be time for him to consider retirement and just stick to training. If Tim Zhu loses, he will be considered by many in the boxing community as a fraud. As someone who, the minute he stepped in the ring with a real fighter, was unable to meet the challenge. I think it's going to be a great fight. I think it's going to be an exciting fight. And I'm going to predict that Tony Harrison wins a very close split decision. And 
goes ahead and gets a third fight with Charlo. And that's my prediction. Oh, oh, by the way, I predicted Brandon Figueroa would beat Max Sayo by decision. And so now I'm on a two-fight prediction winning streak. This Saturday night is going to be pretty hard to step up a third. And most people are picking Zoo. But I'm going with the Wiley veteran. I'm going with the guy who I believe is hungrier than Tim Zoo. Not to say Tim Zoo's not hungry. Tim Zoo wants to prove to everybody that he's not doing this because of who his father was, one of the greatest fighters of my generation, Casa Zoo. He's trying to prove to everybody he's trying to step out of his father's shadow. So he's hungry, and so is Tony Harrison. My prediction, Tony Harrison by decision, and then getting the right to fight Charlo a third time. Now on to the Q&A portion of the podcast here we go here we go okay i've got several questions so let me start with ll school case question who is better at the bob and weave tyson frazier or quarry of these three in in my order i'd have tyson third because Mike Tyson did use the bob and weave, but after Kevin Rooney was fired in 1988, Tyson abandoned the bob and weave and became a one-dimensional slugger. So we're talking only a three-year period, 1985 to 1988, that Mike Tyson used the bob and weave. While it was effective, it was for a short term. Quarry and Frazier used it throughout their entire career. I would put Frazier second. Because Frazier got hit a lot against Ali, Foreman. In his three fights with Ali and his two fights with Foreman, he got hit a lot using the bob and weave style. And for a small heavyweight, he was 5'10", 5'11", just like Mike Tyson. That's necessary when you're fighting guys 6'3", 6'4", 6'5". Because you can't stand up tall. But... Against elite fighters like Foreman and, and, and Ali, Joe Frazier took a hellacious beating. Quarry, in my opinion, was the greatest fighter when using the bob and weave style in defensive in defensive efficiency. Quarry made a lot of good to great fighters miss. Matthew Saad Muhammad is one of the greatest offensive light heavyweights of all time. He couldn't hit Quarry in the two fights that Quarry beat the hell out of Saad. And while it didn't end Saad's career, Saad Muhammad was never the same after those two brutal beatings he took at the, took at the hands of Dwight Muhammad Quarry. Uh, Dwight Muhammad Quarry gave Michael Spinks difficulty in their unification fight. Spinks, though, smartly stayed outside, used the jab, and didn't try to force things. He had Quarry come at him and... Uh, Muhammad lost the decision. Dwight Quarry, Dwight Muhammad Quarry lost the decision, and Spinks won in one of the biggest light heavyweight fights of my lifetime. When Quarry fought Evander Holyfield, the first fight. Now, the first fight was a war. The first fight was a miniature Ali Frazier, but. He did make Holyfield miss a lot in that fight, and Holyfield had to rally down the stretch in order to win a split decision. Now, the second fight, Quarry had took such a beating the first fight that in the second fight, he was no match for the younger, stronger Evander Holyfield. And by the time Quarry fought George Foreman, he had no business being in the ring. He was a fat, sloppy, midget heavyweight. Dwight Quarry was 5'6", five, 5'7", five, at the most, fighting guys six feet and above. He uh, Quarry would fight guys from six feet to six foot two in the light heavyweight division at cruiserweight. Guys like Michael Spinks, Evander Holyfield, and as big as six foot five, which George Foreman uh, was. So I go Quarry one, Frazier two. Uh, Tyson three as far as all-time great Bob and Weave defensive fighters. Okay, next question is, 
from John Lewis, Detroit brother. He asked, my thoughts on Ali's grandson, Nico Wash. What do you think his ceiling is once he starts facing real competition? Great question, John. Nico Walsh, no one heard of this guy until a couple of years ago when all of a sudden Bob Arum gave him a boatload of money to start fighting for top rank. Look, I've been watching boxing since 1977. I never knew Ali had a grandson that was boxing. All of a sudden, this guy comes out of nowhere, and he's been fed one tomato can after another. My brother, my Detroit brother, my good brother, and um, I don't have the information in front of me. I want you to, uh, matter of fact, I'm going to uh, get the information from you on Twitter. And next week, I promise on the podcast, I will promote your YouTube page. Okay, my brother. Nico Walsh is going to be another Edgar Belanga, a guy who's fed stiff after stiff after stiff. And the minute he faces an elite boxer, he's going to get a brutal beating. He's not that good. He's living on his grandfather's name. They're exploiting. Bob Arum is exploiting Muhammad Ali from the grave. Unfortunately, he's not that good. He's not. He's a gimmick. And gimmicks like him, Edgar Belanga and Jake Paul, when they finally face a real fighter, they will get knocked the fuck out. Okay. LL School K with another question. My thoughts on Jack Dempsey. Jack Dempsey was a hell of a fighter. Jack Dempsey beat the hell out of Jess Willard. And Jess Willard was like six, seven inches taller than Jack Dempsey. And he beat the hell out of Jack. That was a one-sided beating. The huge problem I have with Jack Dempsey. And, man, he could have gotten it done. Jack Dempsey in his prime. When Jack Dempsey was heavyweight champion of the world, he was, along with Babe Ruth, the most popular athlete in the world and so at one point the number one contender for Jack Dempsey's heavyweight championship was a black brother a black man named Harry Wills Dempsey did everything he could not to fight Harry Wills and I know there's revisionist history oh he wanted to fight they just couldn't come to no you're the heavyweight champion of the world and you didn't fight you didn't defend the title for four years For four years, he didn't defend the title. Throughout the entire time, he was the heavyweight champion of the world. Harry Wills was the number one contender, and he never faced Harry Wills. He didn't have to. He had built-in excuses. All right? Harry Wills was black. Also, all Dempsey's got to say, oh, no no, uh, sanctioning body. Well, not really. Back then, it was a state athletic commission. No state athletic commission is going to uh, sanction a fight between me and a black fighter. And I know there's revisionist history that Tex Record and other promoters were trying to make a fight and uh, terms couldn't come to agreement. You're Jack Dempsey. You could afford anybody you wanted to. You didn't fight at all. All you did was fight exhibition after exhibition after exhibition. He held the world heavyweight title for three years without having to defend it. And the minute he defended it against Gene Tunney, he got outboxed. And Tunney beat him twice. That being said, Jack Dempsey is an all-time great and deserved of his Hall of Fame um, status. He deserved induction. He, He was up until... Up until um, Joe Lewis, Jack Dempsey was probably the most popular heavyweight champion in American history. Joe Lewis surpassed him, and then, of course, Muhammad Ali surpassed both of them combined. But Jack Jack Dempsey, throughout the Warring Twenties, was alongside Babe Ruth, the most popular athlete in the United States. I don't know about the world because I don't know what sports Europe and Africa and Asia were following in the 1920s. I know boxing was one of them. I know they weren't following baseball. Okay. I can can attest to that because baseball, even though it was the most popular sport in America, was an American sport, period, end of story. Now, on to the next question, which 
<laughs> Which, ironically, ironically, is uh, Jack Dempsey related. Let me get to the question and I'll tell you why. Let me see. Here it is. The question by Jesus, another uh, longtime listener and a frequent contributor to the podcast. What's the oldest footage you have in your fight collection? Uh, Jack Dempsey's 1919 knockout, I believe. And you could correct me if I'm mistaken. July 4th, 1919. Jack Dempsey's brutal defeat of Jess Willett to win the heavyweight championship of the world in 1919 is the oldest fight footage I have in my over 20,000 fight collection that's on DVD and VHS. So uh, there you go, Jesus, that's the answer to that question. All right, next question. Again, LL School K. I was having a discussion with some buddies at the gym and I was telling them every fight can't be a war otherwise your career will be short. Can you name a fighter that had a short career due to too many wars and not enough boxing? There's a few. I'll just mention one. Right off the top of my head, Ray Boom Boom Mancini. Now, I normally don't look things up, but I want to see how old Ray Boom Boom Mancini was when he retired the first time when he lost to Livingston Bramble in their second fight. Ray Mancini was born on March 4th, 1961. So he was 24 after he lost to Livingston Bramble. No, actually he was 23 when he lost to Livingston Bramble. And I believe he retired a month or two later. He was born in March. So he would have been 24 when he was tired. He was done. He was done. He was in one too many brawls. His entire lightweight title reign was brawl after brawl. Before that, the the fight he had with Alexis Arguello, the first time he tried to win a title, Arguello beat the living hell out of Mancini. And Mancini had no business fighting Arguello because he was 20 years old at the time. And Arguello was this master box. Now, the first 10 rounds, Mancini fought evenly with Arguello. It was because Arguello was a marathon fighter. If he saw that he couldn't knock you out early, he'd box and he'd wear you down. And then late in the fight, he'd torture you. And that's what he did with Mancini. He brutally knocked Mancini out. Then in 1982, Mancini beat Art Frias in a one-round war in which both men just hammered each other until Frias couldn't fight anymore. Mancini wins. Then there was his November 1982 tragic fight versus Dooku Kim in which Dooku Kim died. And then the two fights he had with Bramble, he took hellacious beatings in both fights, losing both fights. So Ray Boom Boom Mancini, big man, his career was cut short. Now he would make a comeback and he would lose both comeback fights to Hector Camacho and Greg Haugen. But by that time, he had no business being in the ring when he fought either guy. All right, on to the next question. Let's see. See what the next question. Okay, matter of fact, I just got this question, so I am going to uh, answer it right now. Uh, From Brad. Brad, long-time listener. Brad asked, when, where did you see Prince? I saw the only time I saw Prince in concert, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, 1988, at the Lakefront Arena in New Orleans, Louisiana. At the time, I was attending Loyola University. I was 20 years old, and this was doing Prince's Love Sexy Tour, and it's still the greatest single concert I ever attended. Prince was in his prime, and Prince was phenomenal that night. Phenomenal. And he no longer had the revolution. He had a a, a band. The revolution was no longer with him. That being the case, he was phenomenal playing the guitar. His vocals were incredible. Uh, When the way he sang, when two are in love and adored to him, my favorite ballads ever by, by Prince, Two and a half hours, 
I could have I could have sat there for two more. And uh, kudos to my buddy at the time. He got us seventh row tickets, and we were there, and we saw Prince in all his royalty, and he was just tremendous. And Prince sounded even better live than he does on an album, a CD, radio, whatever. Prince was just phenomenal. Um, his stage presence, his stage. Ah, man, I could go on for days talking about Prince. But, man, I I was looking at my questions and my timeline, and boom, Brad's question popped up on my regular timeline. So I just added it to the uh, program. Okay. Okay. As a matter of fact, you know what? Here's another question. <laughs> Here's another question. Um. Jay Corpus and Jay Corpus asked, do I still play the tapes? The tapes he's referring to, I posted three audio cassettes I, that I made back in the early 90s. During my player days from when I was in my early to mid 20s, I'd make if I, when I met a young lady, I'd make her a slow jam cassette. Later on, it would be a slow jam CD, but first it was slow jam cassette that I would record on my uh, tape dubber. Uh, I, had a, uh, I had a Techniques tape dubber that could dub songs from a audio cassette to a blank cassette. And no, I, uh, Corpus, I don't play any of those tapes. Those tapes are in storage. All those songs that I have on tape that were on that tape I play on my uh, on my iTunes all those songs are on my iTunes and I play them either on my iMac or mostly on my iPhone or even on my Apple TV because I have the iTunes on the Apple TV so no I don't play any of those tapes I don't play any audio cassettes all of my audio cassettes are in storage collecting dust that I will leave to my soon to be 18 year old nephew when i pass all right because uh can't give them to my son because my son uh in two weeks will be the first anniversary of my beloved son's death so uh there you go corpus and i know you've been listening to the podcast for the last few months so you'll get to hear this uh the, the answer to this question i'll let you know right now on twitter after the show's over that i answered your question on the pod okay Last question from Long Tran, another long-time listener and contributor. He just finished watching Creed 3. He wanted to, me, wanted to ask me this question. Name my five top boxing movies of all time and tell us why the movie's in your list. Okay. My top five boxing movies of all time. Let me put number one to the side. Number one, I'm going to leave alone. Um, what are my top five? Um... In no order. The the other four in no order. The first Creed. The first Rocky. Trying to think of what me other. Uh, the harder they fall. No, not the harder they fall. No, no, I'm sorry. Not the harder they fall. Uh, Requeen for a heavyweight. It's not Requeen for a heavyweight starring Anthony Quinn, and it's the first time you saw Cassius Clay on film. The first acting role Cassius Clay ever had, and that was the movie where you could tell this was 1962, 1963, that this guy was going to be a star because he took over the entire film for the couple of minutes he was in Requeen for a heavyweight. So we have, so far, Creed 1, Rocky 1, Oh, and The Champ, the 1979 version. I didn't see the black and white version. So the reason why I loved Creed 1, it was a great supplement to the Rocky franchise. It resurrected the Rocky Rocky franchise. Michael B. Jordan in a starring role. Ryan Coogler directed his ass off. And Stallone picked the right guy to continue the franchise with. So that was a great eye of talent by Stallone. He saw this young, good-looking black dude with the build and the charisma to continue a franchise that had died. Um, the first Rocky, the ultimate, the ultimate comeback story about this guy, this journeyman boxer who 
is down on his luck. He's an arm breaker for the mob. He, he he's broke. He meets this woman, uh, this uh, librarian or pet store. She she looks like a librarian, but she works in a pet store. Adrian, and they are two sides of the same coin. They both feel like they're losers. They need each other. They fall in love. She inspires him to be better than he's been. He's inspired by her love. It's a love story and the ultimate underdog story. He fights the heavyweight champion of the world, and he gives that guy 15 rounds of hell, loses, but he gains the respect and adulation of the American public. But he doesn't care about that because when the fight ends, all he's screaming is for Adrian. He can't see. Both his eyes are shut from the beating he took. But he's screaming, Adrian! 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 Rocky! <coughs> Beautiful ending to a perfect movie. And that incredible movie that won an Oscar for Best Picture continued into a nine movie series and you recently had the Creed trilogy I haven't seen Creed 3 yet um, I will eventually Mom, two weeks from now I'll have my nephew spend spending the weekend I might take him to see Creed 3 so yeah so those and then um so yeah, Creed. I mentioned why Creed won. I mentioned why Rocky won. Uh, Requiem for Heavyweight is is the story of Anthony Quinn, a washed up heavyweight who turns to wrestling, and you see the the uh, you you see the fall of what used to be a great fighter, and how a great fighter becomes disillusioned becomes a cannon fighter for up-and-coming fighters is looked at as a joke and 60 years later that's still the case with aging boxes that have no business being in the ring due to financial but they're still fighting due to financial difficulties and an inability to do anything else and the greatest boxing movie of all time it's it it's not my opinion. This is fact. If you don't like it, that's your problem. I'm not debating it. Raging Bull. Robert De Niro captured Jake LaMotta's savagery, his physical demeanor, the way he walked, the way he talked, to a T. The Raging Bull. Robert De Niro as Jake LaMotta is the greatest boxing movie of all time, and it was on a short list of one of the greatest movies of the 1980s. Garnet De Niro and Oscar, well-deserved, a Martin Scorsese classic. First time I saw Joe Pesci on in a movie, and he murdered his role as Jake's brother. I believe his name was Tommy in the movie. I might be mistaken. Phenomenal movie, phenomenal movie. I mean, Kathy Moriarty was phenomenal as Vicky LaMotta. She captured Vicky LaMotta's sex appeal, and she captured the sick relationship that Vicky had with Jake LaMotta, the toxic relationship. Man, that's a great movie. And the movie filmed in black and white, and it captures the 1940s and 1950s Bronx. And um, De Niro was just phenomenal. De Niro was in an out-of-body... Was it, De Niro playing Jake LaMotta was an out-of-body experience for De Niro. It, he was just on fire throughout that entire movie. So th there you go. Those are my top five boxing movies of all time. And now on to my, let me, let me get it. Let me, let me find it first. I got to find it. My uh, fifth greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Let me see if I can, uh, here we go. My 45th greatest fighter of the last 45 years Aaron DeHawk Pryor. Aaron DeHawk Pryor had one of the most incredible wills to win the sport of boxing has ever seen. 
From the first round on, he was like a locomotive coming straight on, hence the nickname Hawk. He was one of the greatest fighters of the 1980s, an era that saw so many legendary fighters. There is not another 140-pound fighter, past or present, that could have defeated him. Pryor ran roughshod over the division from 1980 to 1986. He was far and away the fifth greatest fighter of the last 45 years. As an 11-year-old boy back in 1979, I read a story in World Boxing Magazine about Pryor. At the time, Pryor was fighting in small clubs as a lightweight. The top 135-pound fighters refused to fight him. Howard Davis Jr., the 1976 U.S. Olympic gold medalist at lightweight, and his handlers wanted no part of Pryor. The WBA champion Ernesto Espana and the WBC champion Jim Watt made all the excuses in the world not to fight him. It's understandable why. He would have knocked out all three of them in five rounds or less. My father described Pryor as a whirlwind who kept coming and coming. That was evident in his April 13, 1980 knockout of Leonidas Aspilia. Aspilia ran and held the entire fight before finally succumbing to Pryor's nonstop aggression. My father was spot on about Pryor. He would move up to super lightweight and fight the legendary Colombian Antonio Cervantes for his WBA crown. What happened in that fight was akin to a legal mugging. On, April, on August 2nd, 1980, in his hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio, Pryor jumped on Cervantes as soon as round one commenced. He would be knocked down by Cervantes' right hand, but got back up immediately and was throwing punches before the count of one. Cervantes suffered an intense beating before being put out to pasture in the fourth round. The torch had been passed from one legend to a 25-year-old future legend. The prior reign at 140 would be the most dominant reign in the history of that division. After two easy, successful title defenses, Pryor met Detroit native Dewan Johnson on November 14, 1981. Pryor was five foot six, and many felt the five foot nine Johnson was too rangy and tall for Pryor to overcome. Once again, Pryor was knocked down in the first round, and he was having difficulty in outfighting the lengthier Johnson. However, by the fifth round, Pryor's nonstop fighting style wore Johnson out. Pryor batted Johnson's head like a ping-pong ball from that moment on until the referee stopped the fight. Despite his dominance at 140, Pryor wasn't receiving the type of lucrative paydays the other greats at the time were, especially Sugar Ray Leonard. Pryor wanted to fight with Leonard badly. Until that could happen, he defended his title with two more knockouts before getting his first million-dollar payday by defending his title against the legendary Nicaraguan Alexis Arguello on November 12, 1982. My father took me to see this fight at the Puerto Rico Theater in our South Bronx neighborhood. Going into the fight, he reminded me of the fact that Arguello always had difficulty with boxers who moved and stay outside. Pryor was a very aggressive fighter who threw punches and punches. My father felt that Pryor was going to walk into one of Arguello's huge right hands and be knocked out. The first four rounds saw Pryor rush at the 30-year-old Arguello like my father predicted. Early in the opening stanza, Hold on, I lost my, I lost my law. Early in the opening stanza, Arguello hit the 27-year-old Pryor right on the button with a right cross that momentarily stunned him. Pryor shook it off and proceeded to outslug Arguello and stun him twice with his own right hand in a frantic and fast-paced first round. Rounds two to four saw the same pattern repeat itself. Pryor would attack Arguello, and the two all-time greats would hit each other with one bomb after another. Pryor had the advantage in these exchanges because of his superior hand speed. There was no way these two fighters could keep this frenzied pace going on for an entire 15 rounds. Pryor did what great fighters do and adjusted his style in the fifth round. He went from taking the fight to Arguello to moving side to side and boxing from the outside. From rounds 5 to 10, Pryor used his superior foot and hand speed to befuddle Arguello. He landed his underrated jab at will and gave Arguello footwork that he couldn't deal with. Arguello would land an occasional big right hand, but every time he did, Pryor would come back with a sizzling combination and then move out of harm's way. My father couldn't believe the boxing IQ that Pryor was displaying. He had figured that Pryor's, mach that Pryor's machismo would do him in. Pryor was showing his transformation into boxing immortality. The next three rounds saw Pryor not move as much due to fatigue. The two boxing giants once again exchanged bombs while inside. 
Arguello landed several wicked right hands that caught prior but didn't move him. Arguello landed one of the best right crosses I've ever seen in the 13th round that snapped Pryor's head back like a bobblehead doll. My father and I couldn't believe that Pryor wasn't knocked out from that nuclear bomb of a right. Not only did that shot not hurt Pryor, it didn't slow him down as Pryor continued to land one big shot after another. After the 13th round in it, my father expressed to me that Arguello was done. Nothing was getting in the way of Pryor winning this fight. Between rounds 13 and 14, Pryor's trainer Panama Lewis gave Pryor a black bottle that contained an unknown beverage. While many boxing pundits cried foul play, I always felt that it didn't matter what Pryor drank that night. He could have drank piss. He could have drank Coca-Cola. He could have drank a shot of rum. He wasn't going to be denied a victory in the biggest fight of his career. Pryor came out roaring in the 14th round and landed a lethal right cross left hook combination that staggered Arguello. Pryor then launched a fusillade of unanswered punches to the head and body, 25 to be exact, until referee Stanley Christodoulou stepped in to stop the fight. Arguello fell down in a heap against the ropes. Aaron Pryor proved he was the greatest 140-pound fighter of all time that night in Miami and the greatest fight still to ever take place at 140 pounds. Unfortunately, days after Pryor's greatest victory, Sugar Ray Leonard retired due to suffering a detached retina. Pryor's dream fight would never come to fruition. Pryor would again knock out Arguello in a rematch 10 months later. That would be the beginning of the end for Pryor as he began losing to the only opponent who defeated him. Cocaine. Pryor became increasingly addicted to the drug, which ended his marriage and had him washed up as a boxer in his early 30s. He was stripped of his title in 1985 and in 1987 was knocked out by Bobby Joe Young in his only career defeat. When Pryor finally retired in 1990 at the age of 35, he was broke, legally blind in his left eye and totally hooked on crack. Pryor turned his life around. After several years of battling drug addiction, Pryor was successful in coping with his drug dependency and became a drug rehabilitation a drug rehabilitation counselor in his hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio. Pryor became best friends with Arguello and continued his crusade against the ills of cocaine. Pryor died of heart disease in 2016, 11 days shy of his 61st birthday. One of the five greatest boxer punches I've ever seen. Pryor's final record was a spectacular 39 wins, one loss with 35 knockouts. More than justifying my ranking as the, the fifth greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening. I will hopefully talk to you guys next week. Continue to be blessed and be a blessing.